Amen. Please be seated. And as you do so, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13 for our passage this morning. You can also find this passage on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. This morning we are looking at what on the surface uh, may seem like a simple interaction between Abram and Lot, his nephew. But as we dig into this passage a little bit, um, we're going to see this is actually a continuation of the period of testing that Abram was faced with in the previous chapter. If you remember, um, in chapter 12 in the second half, Abram was uh, tested with famine. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, uh, the place that God called him to be. He was further tested, or, or tempted rather, uh, when he chose, instead of staying in Canaan, to go to Egypt. There he feared for his life, and so he pawned his wife off as his sister to save himself. And by God's mercy and grace, she was rescued. The Abram that we read about in the second half of chapter 12, he, he doesn't seem to imitate um, what the overall Bible says of Abraham, which is he was a great man of faith, that he was the model, he is the faithful one, the one that we should look to. And yet we recognize last week at the conclusion um, that while Abraham or Abram and or Abraham's life is a life of faithfulness, what it really says is the faithfulness of God. When we think of Abram's life, we really speak to the faithfulness of his God and his God and drawing him back again and again and again. And to that, we can say that his story is one of faith. In our passage this morning, though, um, we see that Abram gets a bit of a do-over. Uh, he kind of tripped out of the, the starting gate last week, um, but he gets a bit of a do-over. He's going to be tested again. He's going to have an opportunity to display his faith, to show his faithfulness. Uh, and we will see how he responds this morning and if his faith has grown in light of the trials that he faced in the previous chapter. With that being said, would you please uh, look on with me as I read for us the word of the Lord I will be reading it from Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 1, and I will read into the end of the chapter. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was very well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me as we go before the Lord and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we have now heard your word. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be upon us, that seeing we may see and hearing we may hear, that we may know these truths. And as we prayed for our children, that you would hide them in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. Father, I pray for clarity and for understanding. I pray for your people this day and during this time. I ask that your will be done, that your truth be shown, and that you would be with your people this day. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. In the 2000... 16 Olympics. I'm a fan of the Olympics. Um, I, I like watching them and seeing all of the things that I can't do. And uh, one of my favorites is the swimming events. Um, and I, I had an athlete that year that, that I liked really well. It's a female athlete by the name of Katie Ledecky. Probably not a name that most of you know. Uh, but at the 2016 Olympics, she was 19 years old, a young, very young female swimmer. And her specialty was the 1,500 meters, but they don't race that in the Olympics. And so she did a whole host of other races, particularly the 800. In what would become the most one of the, if not the most remarkable win in Olympic history, Katie Ledecky won gold in this event, the 800-meter freestyle, by beating her closest opponent by 12 seconds. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but I challenge you later today or this week, go home, go look up a clip of this race, the, the 800-meter freestyle in the 2016 Olympics, and look at the picture of her touching the finish. And they've got these wide panoramic cameras, and they've zoomed it all the way out to give you a, a, a picture of the race, and you can't find an opponent in it. They zoomed out as far as they could, and they still couldn't find an opponent. She had to wait for her opponents to finish before she could receive the award for her win. Um, some say it was one of the most remarkable wins in um, athletic history since uh, the horse secretariat uh, won the Triple Crown. Um, and we could talk about that. But I, just, I bring this up, an amazing athlete, uh, an incredible um, uh, young woman, and in fact, she's gone on since then to continue to win. Uh, and she is, uh, the, I'm pretty sure, still the highest um, decorated female athlete uh, for the Olympics. And she now holds the 28 fastest times in the 800-meter freestyle. 
Uh, so to beat her own record, she's got to beat 28 other of her own records. We love these stories, don't we? We, we, we love these incredible displays of talent, these, these efforts and skill that, that, that show people to be almost superhuman. We love watching them, but they are rare, and they don't come up very often. Uh, the reality is most of us will never even see the Olympics live, much less um, win an Olympic medal. But when we look back at the Bible... I want us to be very careful that we don't do that thing where we look at these athletes and, and, and do that to Bible figures. When we look at the life of Abraham, may we not put him on that pedestal and consider him a superhuman athlete. We do sing about him um, in um, children's church and uh, in different events. We sing of him as Father Abraham. He had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. We make a big deal about who he is. But I hope um, across last week and even into this week, you see that he is human. He is a man. He is a man that is prone to sin, that is prone to error, that is prone to miss the mark, that to not live up to God's standards. In fact, he is not like one to break Olympic records. He's more like, at least I'll pick on myself, one who's likely to trip over the starting block at the beginning of the race. But the Lord, the, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the Bible picture, the Lord is concerned about how we finish the race. God is concerned about us crossing the finish line to endure the race, to make it to the end. And He has promised us that by His grace we will. We will finish and we see that, and, and it's why I'm so encouraged to be studying the life of Abraham, or Abram at this point. It's, it's why I offer him to you today as a man of faith, a man who has his shortcomings and his failures, a, a, a man who in our passage is living faithfully. And in doing so, he shows us what being faithful in a difficult season looks like. Now, last week he showed us what not being faithful looks like during famine, this week, he shows us what being faithful looks like in time of plenty. And we should ask ourselves, which is the harder thing to do? When is it more difficult to be faithful, when there is lacking or when there is much? And we're going to consider that as we walk through our passage this morning in, in four major areas, looking at the benefits of true faith or the marks of true faith. We see it first that faith begins with worship. And the first four verses, would you please look with me? As we look at our passage here, um, it begins with Abram and Sarai leaving Egypt and going to the Negev, or Negev, uh, depending on your translation, it, it, it can be worded the same. But this is a move back to the land of Canaan. This is a shift away from where they went, away from where they provided for themselves, away from their answer to their problems, and back to where God told them to be. When Abram was in a place that he should not have been, namely Egypt, his faith wavered, he faced difficulties, he had challenges, and there was conflict. But when we see the shift away from Egypt back to Canaan, he gets to leave. He gets to leave with his possessions. He's not chased by the Egyptians. 
which is uncharacteristic from what we know from Egyptians, and there's no mention of famine. He, he comes with his possessions, he, he comes back into this land, and he settles back where he was called to be. And what does he do? What is the response of Abram? This is so important for us today. Um, listen to what it says. He journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What does faith look like? Faith trusting in God, hoping in God, resting in His work on our behalf? It looks like worship. It looks like lifting Him up and magnifying Him and drawing attention to Him and making much of Him. We don't know what kind of prayers that Abram lifted at this point, uh, but you can imagine they could be prayers of repentance, for being outside of God's will, for seeking His own way. They could be prayers of gratitude that God saved him and saved his wife and rescued them from this difficult situation that Abram put them in. They could merely be prayers or songs or sacrifices of worship, of, of thankfulness, of gratitude for who God is. We don't know specifically uh, the, the, the way in which he expressed his worship, but we know that he turns to God. And also he turns to God in the way that God has prescribed. He goes to the altar. And so as we today, as, as we look at this passage and we think about what faith looks like in our lives, we have to begin here. It looks like worship. It looks like worship. And it doesn't matter if we're in a season of famine or feasting. It doesn't matter if we have much or have little. It doesn't matter the circumstances around it. We must begin with worship. It's why we start the week off in the Lord's house. It's why we start the week off in worship. And it's also, and we've done it this morning, and I, and I bring it up again. I, I do this um, from time to time. Uh, the first page of our bulletin is a, a page of proclamation and declaration and celebration. We declare, this is who you are, O God. This is who you have said you are. This is what you claim to be, and praise be to you. And then we get to the beginning of that second page, and, and rightly so, we go, uh-oh. <laughs> if that's who God is, I'm in trouble. If that is God, then woe is me. And so we praise God, and then we're led into confession. We're, we're led into to, to His forgiving us. Faith, coming to God, means praising Him. It means asking for His forgiveness. It means celebrating Him, hearing from His Word, which we are doing now, and then partaking of His sacrament, which we will do in a moment. It's resting in God. And so that's the first marker we see here, is faith looks like worship. But it doesn't just look like worship. It, it is a trusting. It's a trusting of God's plan. And acting in faith also means to trust in God's plan. We find this in our next section, verses 5 through 7. And we have to admit something. This move back did not rid Abram from all the trials in his life. We would be tempted, and at times we are tempted to believe that, if we would simply be doing what God's called us to do, if we're living the way God's called us to live, we would have an easy life, a convenient life, a, a life without worry or strife or conflict that's not the case. 
And this is an, an, an important theological lesson that we must learn. God will often bring us trials in our lives to test our faith, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to grow us in our trust and knowledge and love of Him. The devil loves to tempt us. And the devil loves to tempt us in all sorts of seasons and circumstances. The devil loves to seek to draw us away from God. I think of, um, it's been a long time, but uh, one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. If you've ever read it, I'd encourage you to read it once. You'll be so heart-stricken, you probably won't do it twice. Um, But there's a conversation in there between two demons. Uh, They're trying to, to damn this man to hell, and they're working on the plan to do it. And there's this one circumstance where things aren't working out for the junior demon. And, in, and, and so the older demon's like, how about you give him some things? Hey, you've been trying all these other things. How about you actually give him what he's asking for? That'll get him. He'll get complacent. He won't need God as much. He'll, he'll rest on his work and his accomplishment, and that's how we'll win. That's how we'll win the day. And it does about work, actually. The devil doesn't care if we have excess or are lacking. The devil will use whatever tactics the devil can to draw us away from God. And in, definitely in the, in the, the situation with Abram uh, and his nephew Lot, we get a unique situation. It's not because of hardship, it's actually because of excess that we find this trial before us. And be clear that this isn't a, a temptation per se, this is more a trial from the Lord. But we read, Lot who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's stock and uh, the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now let's consider this. Let's, let's, let's picture this trial that's going on. Abram was called to this land. God said, be here. This is where I want you. This is what you will possess. This will be your inheritance for your children and your children's children after you. He's being obedient. He learned his lesson in Egypt. He's being obedient to the Lord. And then he gets back to the land and is like, all right, God, I'm here. And there's people in it. And they're taking the resources. And they're using it. The the Canaanites and the Perizzites are there. And they're many and they're big and they're scary. But he's like, okay, God, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful. I trust you. And then he's got his nephew over here who has as much wealth and resources and plenty as he does. And all of a sudden, there's too much of a good thing. We can't sustain it. This can't keep going like this. We've got too much, God. So that's where Abram finds himself. And there's a lot of ways he could have solved this problem. He could have left. He could have said, okay, we've got too many resources. That's fine. We'll go find somewhere else. Thankfully, he didn't because that didn't work last time he tried that. He could have told Lot, Lot, get out of here. This is mine. God said it was all for me. You go on. You scram. I don't need you anymore. He does not. He could have gotten rid of some of his resources. He does not. Rather, what Abram says is, God, I trust your plan for my life. I trust your plan. If you want me in this land, then you will put me here. If you want me to have these possessions, you will take care of these possessions. If you want to provide for me, you will provide. And this actually goes to a a very important note um, about the Lord's provision. And it has to do with Lot specifically. When Abram was called, 
to go to this land, it said, leave your father's house, leave your family, and leave your home, and go to the place that I will show you. I will bless you, and I will bless those after you. Um, I will make you the father of nations, and you will be a blessing unto them. And Abram said, great, Lot, you're coming with me. Why did he bring his nephew? Because his wife couldn't conceive. He brought his nephew because his wife couldn't get pregnant. And Abram, at least in the back of his mind, was afraid that God couldn't fulfill the promise and he needed a backup plan. And so Lot here actually represents probably the greatest trial in this passage. What do you do with your plan B? Because to this point, she's still not pregnant. She's still not able to conceive. And so Abram found himself asking, what do I do? Do I trust in the plan of God or do I trust in my own plan? And what he does is he says, I trust God. We see that in in the conclusion in in 8 to 13 as this passage unfolds. And it's so easy to, to consider, you know, you, you have family, you um, get together with, with siblings, and, and hopefully not, but um, my father's a land surveyor, and, and my father would tell me some of the biggest fights he's ever witnessed in his life is when a, a, a family would die, and the assets would be left to be divided to the children. And dad would say, oh, I hate looking at a, um, anything that says that. This is left to the family to divide it up because boy siblings would go all out at this point. I want that acre. I want this one. You can't have this. We're dividing it this way. We're not dividing it that way. And wars would break out in families um, over this. My poor father's just there to mark the land and get out of the way. You can imagine how easily that could happen here. You could imagine how this situation could build up into this great fight and turmoil and conflict And yet it doesn't. Why? Because at least at this point, Abram's going, all right, God, it's your plan. You're going to have to provide here, and I'm going to seek peace. I'm going to seek peace instead of conflict. I'm going to trust you and trust that everything will work out for the sake of my family. It's so much so that we actually don't even get Abram's report of this. We actually get Lot's report of it. We see that Abram says, all right, Lot, I want to keep peace here. Pick a direction, right or left. Look, make your choice, and I'll go the opposite direction. Because God was trusting more, or Abram was trusting more in his God uh, than he was in what he could see. And Lot goes, okay, I can do this. And Lot looks around, and he looks this one direction and says, wow, that would be the choicest. That would be the best. Which, by the way, was a little bit wrong of him, wasn't it? Lot's only there because he followed Abram. Lot only has possessions because Abram has possessions. He only has what he has because he has been with the one that's been blessed by God. And so in response to that and in gratitude for that, he goes, that's what I want. That's the best lot. (laughs) Didn't mean that, but anyway. um, There's selfishness there. There's selfishness there. And he makes a great error, though. Boy, does he make a great error the, he picks this land and he says, this looks great. It's almost like the Garden of Eden. It's so beautiful. It's so perfect. This is mine. Yeah, it's got the land of Sodom in it, but I'll take it. Verse 13 says of that, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot, 
He didn't trust in God. He didn't trust in God's provision. He trusted in his eyes, what he could see, what he could take, what he could possess. And he said, I want this, and I'll deal with those problems when they come. I just, I'll, I'll read to you what Calvin says of this. Let us learn then by this example. Our eyes are not to be trusted. We must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unaware with many evils. Just like Lot when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise and was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. He had possessions and wealth and all of these things that you could want in this life and they tried him and he chose poorly. He chose to follow his eyes instead of follow his heart, to follow his God. But Abram, on the other hand, is to be commended because he realizes that God is in control, that, that God is sovereign, and that he was to fully separate. He was to separate from him and from Abram and from his family, to place trust fully in God. God, if you want me to have descendants, I will have descendants. I don't need a plan B. You are the plan. And we know that, that faith it rests upon the promises of God. That, that true faith, it, it rests in worship, that it rests in the plan, that it rests in the promises of God. And for a second time, the Lord speaks. The Lord speaks to Abram, reaffirming those promises. As he does so, he, he shows Abram that, Abram, you made the right choice. God says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Just a quick pause, that leaves nowhere else to look. That covers everything. If you go in your directions, you've got it covered. For all of the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust, your offspring could be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Note how God in that promises offspring. This would have been an affirmation that he made the right decision. Abram and Sarai would have offspring. Note how God in this promises land. This land will be a place for you and for your descendants. It doesn't matter who currently possesses it. It doesn't matter how great their armies are. For the Lord is declaring this land ultimately belongs to me. And if I give it to you, you will have it. Abram has heard yet again the promises of God. And you have to believe. You have to believe that he is more inclined now to respond faithfully because of what happened in Egypt. You have to believe that after he sold his wife off of his sister to save himself, he's more inclined to go, God, now let's try it your way this time. He did it when he had nothing, and now that he has much He's, you find him saying, God, you are in control. This wasn't mine. I didn't earn it. It came from you, and because it comes from you, it belongs to you. I will trust in you. And we know that he has that trust. We know that he exhibits that kind of faith because what does he do? He, this ends the way it starts. Abram moved his tent and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He started with worship and he concludes with worship. He says, thy will be done, O Lord. And he sacrifices faithfully to his God. This is what faith looks like. And it's encouraging, isn't it, to see that 
despite Abram acting poorly in the previous chapter, now he responds in faith. And I want to encourage you, dear church, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, and in lacking or in plenty, in, in need or, or full of, of, of that which you need or want, trust in the Lord. Recognize that it's from Him that He provided it, that it belongs to Him, that you belong to Him. Trust in Him. I pray that this encourages you this morning. Again, it is so easy to look at Bible characters, especially if we pick a particular verse or take a passage out of context and think of them as perfect as these figures that that we surely couldn't obtain to that. But there was only one perfect person in all of Scripture, and that was Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, as much as we can praise Abram here in chapter 13, here in a few chapters we're going to say, oh no, not again, Abram. Really? Like you, you, you tried selling her as a, as a sister once and it didn't work, so you try it a second time? Come on, man, get it together. The only one that we can look to and hope in and rest in perfectly is Jesus. Jesus is the faithful one. He is the descendant of Abraham who buys us a land and a home and a family and a hope and a possession if we but trust in him by faith. And true faith and real faith in God looks at, looks like worshiping him, resting in him, receiving his plan, resting on his promises and taking it all day by day. Abram is not the superhuman gold medalist that's leaps and bounds greater than others. And you'll have to forgive me, but I, I want to conclude with telling you about another one of my favorite Olympians. Uh, this one goes all the way back to 2002. If you didn't know Katie Ledecky, you certainly won't know Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury was a short track speed skater on ice, representing Australia in the Winter Games. He was not highly ranked, and if my memory serves me right, he just barely made the cut to appear. He was finishing the race in dead last. However, he became the first person not only from Australia, but the first person from the Southern Hemisphere to win a gold in a winter event. As all of the other skaters piled up mere feet from the finish line in a collision, and he was so far in the back of the pack, he skated past them to win. I would far rather my life look like Stephen Bradbury. I would far rather know that God is going to have to move mountains because I know that my God can move mountains. I would rather know that He calls me to run my race, to do that which He has set before me, and who cares what it looks like before anyone else? Because it's God I'm worried about, not them. And he does see us through. What does Paul say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I lay now hold of the eternal reward that is set before me. That's what's waiting for us. If we but take God by faith and trust in him, that was the reward for Abram. And that's the reward for you and me today. If we but trust in that same God and put our hope in him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are not a perfect people. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve your mercy. Lord, we struggle much like many have struggled when we have little 
and even more so when we have much. We are often to turn to ourselves and our own good works and our own ability when we think we can provide for our own needs. But Lord, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves this morning, would you help us to trust in you? Would we place our faith and our hope in you? Would we rest in what you have done? Would we be heirs of the promise you made to Abraham? I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. And may we recognize that doesn't have very much to do with Abraham. It has more to do with his father, the heavenly father. And may we all be counted amongst that number. Lord, give us this kind of faith. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.